Welcome to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down, and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Episode 7, The Whole Truth and Nothing But the Truth, August 6th, Day 2. Life can change in the blink of an eye. You know, ICUs have a certain sound, like lots of sounds, sort of science fiction spaceship-like sounds, like beep, 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 and others, like a British police car, but slower. All these sounds emanating from the various monitors and machines keeping very sick and injured people alive. I realized all those machines with their steady beeps were just mimicking the natural rhythm of a beating heart or the inhaling and exhaling of the lungs. But they were keeping people alive. I had the impression when I walked past the rooms with the half-drawn beige curtains with large metal curtain rings that slid across large metal curtain rods that most of the patients were still not moving much. It was just so surreal. The atmosphere seemed full of anxiety to me, like what hung in the air was this razor-sharp, thin edge of separation between life and death in every room in this ICU. The mood was tense, as if we were all joined in some high drama, like watching a high-wire tightrope walker without a net. And I realized we were. It was the pulsing beeps of the machines that kept the score, though, of who fell and who didn't. ICUs are harsh places. At least this one was. Much earlier in the day, a very athletic-looking nurse had come into Archer's hospital room. My sister, Elizabeth, was there with me. I was tucking the rolled washcloths under Archer's hands and fingers as the nurse was changing out one of the many drip bags on one of the many tubes that were providing medicine and hydration to him. I moved out of her way and looked at her as she brushed past me. And when she finished, I said to her, do people like Archer get their hands back? He just needs his hands. I held out my own hands and said, he's an artist and a cook. And she said, not likely. 
My sister says I held out my hands and just looked at them. And then I literally crumpled and fell to the floor on my knees. And the nurse, she did nothing. ICUs are harsh places. You know, I think about that a lot. And I think about reality and about information and about truth. I think about the hard jobs people in ICUs have. And I think about the suffering of people very badly injured in those ICU beds. And I think about the suffering of their families witnessing their suffering, projecting their limited futures, and vicariously experiencing their suffering. And it just seems to me that so much suffering in ICUs and in life, for that matter, could be lessened if we responded to crisis and loss and tragedy with some hope. Because it just seems to me that it's not the whole truth if we don't include hope. Like that nurse's answer to me, not likely, was not wholly truthful. The medical staff may have been partially truthful, but what they said was not the whole truth. Doctors and nurses are not God. They're just human beings. She could have said when I asked if people like Archer ever get their hands back, not likely, but you never know. Or had we been in the Midwest where I grew up, Maybe it would have sounded something like, oh, not likely, honey, but you never know with God. Or in Charleston, South Carolina, where I was born. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to say, not likely, sweetie, but we don't know how the good Lord works. Something, something opening for hope, some humility. I think it's the humble heart. That's what keeps hope alive. And a nurse's voice is powerful. They could use their powerful voices in kind ways, being strong enough to be vulnerable. Bad news, it's not the whole truth without including what's possible which includes what we don't know. I mean, that's the other side of the bad news coin, what we don't know. And that can be filled in with hope. Without hope, delivering bad news is not the whole truth. It isn't. It's incomplete. I've thought a great deal about hope and how it lights the way. Hope is like the moon at night. And even during the day, it's there. You just might not always be able to see it because you don't need it as much. Well, that's the way I see it. Oh, I was so glad my sister had arrived and was with me. I glanced at my phone as another text message rolled in from Lisa Milan-san, my good friend in Baltimore. And she texted, 
Louise, we are all praying for Archer's full recovery and for your family. Oh, my God, we are praying. Oh, thank you, sweet Lisa. I so appreciate your fervor. I feel it. Thank you, my friend. I just remember feeling and thinking like, oh my goodness, what, what are they feeling? What are they doing? What are they thinking? It was just so devastating to me and, and, and actually for my whole family. And when I think back, it's all kind of strange because Johnny and Dutch are really good friends and we're really good friends. However, I didn't know Archer as well. I, I know all of your kids, but, you know, Archer's a little bit older. So, you know, I just was never really around him. But it hit so hard when I found out. I never imagined that I would feel like that kind of sadness and pain for, you know, for someone else and, and feeling like what can I do to help? And I, I knew that, you know, we could pray foremost, but I also wanted to do something to be helpful to you because I just couldn't imagine, you know, having to deal with that, you know, if it was like one of my boys. So I definitely felt like I was right there with you <laughs> or with the whole family in feeling, you know, a lot of what you were feeling for some reason. I don't know. Empathy. It's powerful. Oh, my Lord. Dutch, our youngest son away at camp in Maine. Billy and I had not been on the same page at first after last night's family meeting about notifying Dutch. <sighs> Billy felt we should let Dutch finish out his stay at camp and tell him when he returned home in two weeks. I felt we should tell him right away. And I actually felt strongly about that. I understood Billy's reasoning though. Let him have a good time. There's nothing he can do here. And it will just burden him to know he can't do anything. But I had a strong memory of when my family withheld giving me bad news because it wasn't the best time. My dog, I called him Blue, had been hit by a car while out walking with my grandma. I love that dog. He had been with me all through college and when I met Billy. He was special and he went with me everywhere. My grams loved my old hound dog Blue too and I loved my grams. We had agreed Old Blue could stay with her while I was away during my first semester of law school in Virginia. It was the end of the semester and I was studying for my first final exams, which you know in law school are about the only test you have the entire semester, so the stakes are high. Grams and Blue were out for a walk on their way to Washington Park and he darted into the street after a squirrel and a truck hit him. 
I could just see it. My kind, almost 80-year-old grandmother with beautiful white hair taking off her light blue jacket she was wearing to cover him and scoop him up off the middle of Lawrence Avenue in Springfield, Illinois. I can only imagine how devastated she was. But my mom decided it would be easier for me if they waited and told me later. Two weeks later, when they did, I was devastated. But what stung and hung with me the most was that surge of anger I had that they had not told me. I wasn't even there for his burial. Let me decide how to respond was how I felt. I was angry they made that decision that I felt was not theirs to make. They couldn't spare me how I'd feel. I felt their withholding was more for their benefit, honestly. I knew mom thought she was protecting me, but I think it was just easier on them. Telling the truth is complicated, but I wanted and I needed the truth. And the irony, they're not telling me, made me angry. And I still had my sadness to work through. But because I loved them and I really adored my grams, I felt I couldn't get angry, which made it doubly worse. For me, for everyone really, because had I known, Grams and I, we could have comforted each other. I'll never forget sitting at my Grams' kitchen table with my mom and Grams and my Grams hanging her head and fidgeting with her hands in her lap as my mom told me the news. It was so unlike my grandmother, but to me, it was a look of shame. And there was nothing wrong she had done. Blue was a bird dog, a hound dog, a retriever. It just happened. I loved my grams so much and was so sad that she had to carry that burden alone for a full two weeks. When I did cry, I couldn't tell the difference between tears of anger or tears of sadness. Their decision should have been to give me the information. Oh, there I go again with the woulda, coulda, shouldas. I don't need to revisit it anymore, really. Because I had this little epiphany back then. There is no way to be spared sorrow. I didn't realize it then, how that would come to play out now as Billy and I sat bedside to Archer earlier this morning, faced with the decision whether or not to tell Dutch or when to tell Dutch. But I had this flash and I was clear, as if my soul had made a commitment a long time ago. It's important to share information and to be clear when it is not your privilege to keep it. We can't be spared grief, nor do we want to be. 
nor do we want to spare others. And we don't want someone to try to spare us because it's an important life experience. But the whole truth, it's tricky. My decision was to tell Dutch now. I'll let Billy know. I knew that made him uncomfortable. But just like many years ago, I wanted to decide how I felt, how I would respond, how I would work through that loss of blue. I did not want to rob Dutch of knowing, and he could decide. We could help him, but we would not withhold from him. I did not want to spare him as much as I did want to spare him. I love him. So I understood where Billy was coming from. He loves him too. You know what I mean? But in my decades of being a family mediator, I've seen way too much information withheld from people. I really have. I have seen CEOs not tell their execs bad news, husbands not tell their wives about an affair, siblings not tell other siblings about loans of money from their parents, families not tell other family members about skeletons in the closet and other bad news because it's not a good time. Well, what that really means is they believe someone is fragile or they're dealing with some other complication or some other family loss or our relationship is not strong enough to handle this. And then what happens is they put off telling them, but the them learn about it in another way, which is hurtful and often distorted. Or they tell them so late that it leads to a huge blow up and a different kind of distortion with questioning and blaming and broken trust. Or they never do tell them. And a life's worth of uninformed decisions are made around an incomplete reality. Or they all live with the darkness of a kept secret. There is always someone who suffers. Yes, there is such a thing as timing of information. But important information? The time is now. I wanted Dutch to know. I never wanted Dutch or any of my kids to feel that important information about our family was ever, ever withheld from them because it wasn't convenient for us, would be hard on us to tell them, or because we thought they couldn't handle it. It wasn't convenient. It was hard. And we didn't know if Dutch would be able to handle it or how he would handle it. But I thought he could and would. And if not, we would walk those roads and cross those bridges together. The long and short of it is that no time is the best time for bad news. I mean, really. And that is the truth. It is what it is. But there is a way of how you deliver bad news. And that is the whole truth.
<sighs> Billy finally agreed. And we decided we would tell Dutch together as soon as possible. I pulled out a notebook page and we got to work on a short script of what we wanted to say. Billy wanted to work on it. I knew it would be very important for Billy that we did it well. He was very unsettled about it. You know, 36 years of marriage and there are things we are still discovering about each other and some things I might not ever know. I walked out into the hall. I closed my eyes saying an Our Father, asking God to give me guidance as I tried to be very still for a moment. It felt like every single moment, every turn was tense with some decision we had to make. And it was constant, like those beeping sounds all day long. Have you ever been in a situation where you had to deliver bad news? Or have you ever been in a situation where you withheld bad news? or thought there might be a good time or a better time rather than the present time? If you have, we both know it's not easy, right? Whatever path you take. I had sent a text and an email to the camp director up in Maine, Steve Lepler, 12.39 p.m. earlier that day to get the ball rolling to find Dutch in the woods where they have no cell phone service and was waiting to hear back to arrange a time and a place for good enough cell phone reception. I had been careful about what I texted and had read it back to Billy for his approval, as I also knew he and I needed to be on the same page for as much as we possibly could be, every decision, large and small. I knew from years of mediating groups, when a situation is fragile, transparency and hopeful buy-in each step of the way is the only way to maintain cohesion. I had texted the director, hi Steve, please call me this afternoon. We have some very, <laughs> we have some very difficult news we need to share with Dutch and we need to figure out if Dutch stays or comes home. Archer, my 17-year-old son, was in a swimming accident at the beach yesterday. He broke his neck. Surgery went as well as expected last night, early this morning. They fused together C3, C4, C5. Long night, ventilator, tubes. He recognizes me and can nod a bit, but no movement in arms or legs. Please, please pray. We need everyone to pray for a full recovery. Miracles do happen, even for quadriplegic situations. His left arm moved ever so slightly when he was distressed when gagging. And I just believe we can get his arms and hands back in time with God's help and mercy. I taped a miraculous Mary medal to his bed. He is very brave and lion-hearted and knows the importance of stillness, and that is what we need. We will need very excellent physical therapy, and he will need a lot of support of friends. 
and I need to talk with Dutch and have him supported too, as I'm not sure any of us can take in the gravity of it all. One step at a time. I'll wait to hear from you. I quickly scanned the many texts that kept rolling in to see if Steve had gotten back to me. Nothing yet. I was buoyed by the texts I scanned and knew I would get back to them later, the prayer warriors. I reported the camp status to Billy. I could tell he was unsettled. I sent another text to Steve. Steve, please do not share any of this in any way, shape, or form before we speak to you and Dutch. Please say absolutely nothing. We need your word. Archer opened his eyes. Hello, darling. We are right here. Tell me anything you need. Archer started to close his eyes again. This will pass, Archer. This will pass. It's going to get better. I leaned my ear very close to his mouth to see if he was saying anything or to try to make out in the gurgles what it is he might be saying. It was awful. I began to go through the alphabet as I had a few times earlier in the day, the few times when he opened his eyes and looked as if he might want to say something. I began A, B, C, D, E, asking him to blink his eye when I got to the right letter. And if he did, then I'd get close again, really close to his mouth to see if I could make out anything he said. Oh, this was so hard on Billy. Two respiratory techs entered the room and did more suctioning. There were gurgles, and Archer's arm sort of jerked up a little. I swear it did. It was grisly. He'd have this panicky look in his eyes, and then he'd close them and not open them again for a long period of time. It was unsettling. But I told myself, he was allowing his body to rest, to recalibrate. The impact alone was horrific. Two other techs came in, pushing a bulky, large machine on wheels. It was a mobile x-ray machine. I had never seen one before. They said they wanted to take an x-ray of Archer's lungs. Billy and I were asked, to step out of the room. While out in the hallway, I sent out a new prayer request to all the texters. Please keep praying. We need Archer's lungs to be strong enough to get off the ventilator. I also had a chance to tell Billy about the two-person rule I had learned through the Hispanic family and that we needed to figure something out. Billy had said, we needed a system for the cars anyway because the daily parking was $30 and there were no ins and outs of the parking garage. We had three cars there 
not including my sister Elizabeth and Bill's car. Half of our kids who had gone back to Cape May for the day were on their way back to the hospital. Pete was still there, saying he was going to stay, but leave later, early evening. My sister Elizabeth was in the family waiting room. Billy is good at creating operational systems, and we needed one. I told him I had one chief request, that Archer was never left alone, and that, if possible, I wanted one of us to be there at all times with our eyes on him, and that I didn't mind and actually would like very much if it were me. Based on the chaos and complexity of today, I could already see that I had much to learn in order to stay on top of Archer's care. I also told Billy about that arrogant stranger who just came in from outside the hospital as well as other people. I had no idea of who they were. Billy came up with the plan pretty quickly for us. We'd avoid the hefty parking fees, plus the impossibility of finding an open parking space in busy Atlantic City, Caesars packed, parking garage by rotating cars and drivers coming two at a time and just taking turns. The keys to all cars would be kept in the bowl in the kitchen and the counter in Archer's hospital room. All cars would be available for all drivers. Whoever drives to Atlantic City from Cape May needs to text and coordinate with whoever is there to meet them by the front door on the street level and do a fire drill. It seemed a little crazy, but we called Paula and told her the plan and to tell the rest of the kids. I was resolute about one of us being with Archer always. I felt Billy and I were on the same page about that. We both wanted to be there. The kids wanted to be there. We needed to figure out how the others could be there with Archer too. And hopefully this would work. Archer slept through all these logistical decisions. At least, it looked that way. Dewey and Pete walked in and exchanged man hugs with Billy. Dewey, who had driven up from Cape May and just arrived, had brought Archer's phone and large headphones that Danny G had dropped off that Pete had requested for Archer. Archer sent loves music. All my children love music and a wide variety. I told Pete I wasn't sure about the headphones though, but Petey said he knew Archer would want them. Pete, who still had a car parked in the garage and had not gone back to Cape May yet, had gone back to the Walgreens. He was carrying a plastic bag and pulled out with a little peaty grin on his face as his one dodo eyebrow raised, a little alphabet board, the kind a young child would use. You know, the kind with the ABCs cut out of felt Velcroed to one side. Brilliant, Petey. Oh yeah, the boy is always thinking, he said, our engineer. I was impressed though, because we really needed a way to communicate with Archer. 
Archer opened his eyes as Pete flashed him that ABC board. The boys got bedside and close as Dewey began reading to Archer the various text messages on Archer's phone. It was about 2.30 p.m. It seemed so natural and yet was so surreal as Dewey, sort of laughing, was reading whatever Archer's friends had texted him while Archer lay perfectly still. Boys' humor often masks much more tender feelings I've learned over the years. I wanted to give them their privacy. As I was gathering to leave the room, I heard Dewey read from one of Archer's friends, love you, man, stay strong. Oh, I felt my eyes starting to sting a little with tears because that friend wasn't going to be getting a text back from Archer. It was just a little too much to take in. I knew I better leave the room anyway. That two-person rule. Oh, that two-person rule was stressing me out. Believe it or not, I hate to get in trouble. Well, that's not really true. I just don't like it if someone disapproves of me. And I knew I was going to keep breaking that rule. I admit I will bend a rule for a good purpose. But I didn't like being watched last night like I was bad or something. It was unsettling. And what had I done? I had insisted on seeing my son. I was foreign to them, I guess. But it was all such a foreign environment for me. I was really trying to figure it out. I looked back at the boys bedside to Arch and I watched Archer closely from afar. He seemed alert for a sustained period for the first time and seemed to be paying very close attention to his brothers. I took a picture of the three of them. When I came back in about an hour later, there were three nurses and techs and they were checking a lot of numbers and tubes and said they would be getting more x-rays of Archer's lungs every four hours. What was going on? They said they needed to monitor his breathing. I was always asking each of them to explain to me all the stuff that they might say or were looking at and what the numbers on the many monitors meant. And I asked the respiratory people how long Archer would be on a breathing tube. Most said I needed to talk with the doctor. Just then, Dr. Radcliffe walked in. I had asked him earlier this morning if he would come back for another family meeting, and he did. I mean, I expected to see him sometime today or tonight, but I was also filled with gratitude as I realized last night or this morning, one blurring into the other, how he didn't have to and how uncomfortable it was for him to meet with all of us. And he had to drive a ways to come back. As he stood bedside to Archer, I asked if I could take a picture of him. As I look at that picture today, I can see his unease, but I really appreciated his being there. 
Family meetings may have been our family norm, but it seemed they were not the hospital norm. I thought they could be, but that was not my focus at that moment. I wanted to understand more about the ventilator and Archer's breathing. Many years ago, Billy and I had written an article for a magazine on elder law issues, ironically, about the ethics of ventilators and feeding tubes. Yeah, it's true, we had. Neither one of us would have known a thing about them or the angst that families experience, except that I had witnessed this strife in my mediation work, and Billy knew it from his own father's grim death. When doctors place aging patients on ventilators and feeding tubes to keep them alive, intended as temporary measures, it too often leads to life or death decisions foisted onto the family member with the medical power of attorney to decide to remove them or not when they are all that is keeping the unconscious elderly family member alive after a number of weeks or even months. We had learned that these issues are common and cause incredible suffering for families who have no idea of the slippery slope that the insertion of a feeding tube and a ventilator can create. We had raised the question of the ethics of fully informed consent in our article and whether hospitals give you enough information to make an informed decision. We were advocates for families and advocates for families asking a lot of questions. And here we were, Archer, our just turned 17 year old son, completely healthy, but with a broken neck. And now on both a ventilator and a feeding tube, what were the implications? No one had discussed any of this with us that I could remember. I think they told me it would be neck surgery, but what was the implication of neck surgery? Was a ventilator and feeding tube and the paperwork Billy authorized? The small print? Or was it included in a general consent for the hospital to decide what to do? Of course we would have consented. Archer is 17, but I didn't recall or being told anything about feeding tubes and ventilators. I asked Billy about this. He recalled the hospital calling him a couple hours after I had called him about the consent last night, just last night, which seemed like forever ago. He said he was driving with Paula and Dewey and a doctor called him about consent for a different surgery. He said, look at your phone, because I think it was recorded so that I could understand. I had no memory of that. Years later, he told me it might still be on my phone. And do you know I looked, and five years later, yep, I found that voice memo. Here is an excerpt. 8.18 p.m., August 5th, 2015, with trauma surgeon Dr. Kelly Willman at Atlanticare. And the CTC 
scan does show that there's a fracture in his cervical spine, which is the higher part in your neck, at C4 and C5. And he, without being able to move his arms and legs, he is going to require a surgery. It's called an anterior cervical fusion to repair the fracture and take the pressure off of the spinal cord. So he is planned to go to the OR within probably this hour. And again, that's for an anterior cervical fusion. And that would be at C4, 5, and 5, 6. Um, and that, okay. would, that would be to repair the fracture and take the pressure off of the spinal cord. So, so right now okay. he's, he's in MRI because that gives us a better picture of what's putting pressure on the cord, how much pressure is on the cord, if there was any kind of signal change. So that gives us more detail. But either way, with, with the injuries and the fractures that we saw on the CT scan, it is an unstable fracture and will require surgery. Okay. I am all in favor of that. What, what, what's, being, what's, what's being operated I'm, I'm on? sorry? What is it that's actually being operated on? Uh, his cervical spine, so his neck. Is, is the surgeon No, he's on his way. So your wife will meet him very shortly, but he's not here at this moment. How did this okay. happen? So what we, um, as soon as he's out of MRI, they're going to take him up to the OR to get him ready for surgery. And Dr. Radcliffe, who's the surgeon, will talk to your wife and any other family members, you know, before obviously going into surgery. But we do need consent. Otherwise, they can't get him ready for surgery. Um, so I do have, I do have a, a nurse here with me. So I was just going to repeat the surgery and then... Um, you'd be able to give verbal consent. And I am on my way. I'm on the Atlantic City Expressway getting, coming from Philadelphia. Okay. Right now, so I will be there, but I will give you some uh, verbal consent for that surgery. Do you have any information that is not about the state of his spinal cord itself? So that's what the MRI will show us. Because he was unable to move his arms and his legs, and he doesn't have any rectal tone at this time, that does tell us he has a spinal cord injury at that level. Yes, so he just doesn't have the amount of damage to the spinal cord yet? That's correct. Okay. So, but in order to stabilize, you're asking for consent for that? That's correct, and, I, and I'll repeat the surgery, and I'll write this down for, for you, your wife and for you also. But the consent form says that you give Dr. Radcliffe, who you will need permission to do an anterior cervical decompression infusion at C4-5 and C5-6 with instrumentation. Okay. So, um, Is that the, the neck? The, the so he'll actually go in and when you repair the fracture, you have to stabilize it. So he'll actually have a, a graft where the fracture was, because you have to remove the disc, and he'll put a titanium plate on the front of the neck. It's a small titanium plate with screws that will go into the vertebrae, and that's what will stabilize his spine and the fracture. Okay. Again, that'll be at C4-5 and C5-6. What part of the spine is that? Um, in the neck. And what does, it, what does it mean for him, that part of the neck? So that's where he has the fracture, and right now the fracture is unstable, meaning that a piece of bone broke and it's not in alignment anymore. And because he's not being able to move his arms and his legs, 
that tells us he did have a spinal cord injury. So there's something that's putting pressure on his spinal cord. So they want to, we have to remove the pressure on the spinal cord, but we also have to stabilize the fracture. It's hard to believe it was just less than 24 hours ago. Oh, so much has happened. We were nearing the 24-hour mark for that breathing tube, and no one was talking about taking Archer off the ventilator. When she said they would put in an overnight breathing tube, it all just sounded so standard. Usually. Within 24 hours the next day. That's what she said. Archer did have some difficult moments with his breathing, and he would open his eyes that looked like slits of terror, and then he would close them, and we wouldn't see his eyes again for hours. We were in day two, right? I felt like I was getting mixed up and even mixed messages about Archer's breathing tube and ventilator, and I wanted to ask a doctor. I could also tell Billy was worried, but he had gone back to the house for the rest of the day. So Paula, Pete, and I went into the family meeting room with Dr. Radcliffe for another family meeting while Dewey stayed with Archer. Here are excerpts of the recorded voice memo of that family meeting with Dr. Radcliffe as I inquired about Archer's ventilator and Dr. Radcliffe spoke about the lungs. It's, it's baby steps. It's not like what you would think, you know, where, you know, he's, for now it's, it's, it's really basic things. 
So with the ventilator, my understanding is that it comes out when three conditions, I'm trying to put it together. To yeah, I'm not the expert on that. Um, I don't do ventilators. So I don't actually know what the criteria are, but I mean, I have this like really basic knowledge that you have to be able to pull in a certain amount of air and I have no idea what the number is. You have to be able to breathe a certain number of times per minute on your own. And and then, you know, like you can't have any like obvious pneumonia or something really, really terrible. So, um, so that's, uh, um, so that's like the kind of the criteria, I think. I mean, I think that he is out of like the immediate danger of, you know, just life and death. So you do think he's out of that immediate danger? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think that's... Right, that's, that's called that miracle of yesterday. Yeah, I mean, I think that... And, and like, even his heart rate was low because of the spine injury, but now that'll all kind of wash away. That, that'll stop. Um, so I think that the... Uh, um, I mean, something could still happen. You could still get an infection or an pneumonia or something, or a blood clot. But I mean, for the most part, like that's incredibly rare. And he's, I think he's out of the window of where, you know, like so just mortality. I think that, uh, that you know, um, maybe once we get a sense of how long the ventilator will be in, this is how he's doing. Like they do trials of just pulling up, sort of like cutting back on the settings and seeing how much he can breathe on his own. So you should have a sense within the next, like let's say 24 to 40 hours, of just how, um, how long this will be ventilator wise. And I mean, if it's, you know, if they say, well, yeah, we're gonna try to pull the ventilator or pull the tube out or something well, in, you know, in, in five days, Second surgery does not take precedence over his lungs and all that other stuff. And like, we're trying to get his lungs to recover. I don't want to subject him to another breathing tube, you know, more anesthesia. And like, I don't want to set him backwards. Okay. So it was not going to happen that day or in 24 hours, like they had said last night, but we would have a sense of it today and tomorrow, and then the ventilator would come off in five days. Okay, and we'd be fine, so long as nothing really terrible like pneumonia. And we definitely didn't want to have another breathing tube and more anesthesia to set him backwards. Okay, Oof. Archer was out of the life or death situation. Oh, thank you so much. Lord, thank you, God. So I have a new North Star. We have to ensure Archer doesn't get pneumonia. Dr. Radcliffe said, though, that would be incredibly rare. The main thing I wanted to know from Dr. Radcliffe was when we could get Archer off the ventilator. And what do I watch for, for progress with his healing? I know Dr. Radcliffe was exhausted by my questions and he reiterated that it was a bit uncomfortable for him, but I felt insistent on knowing. You know, if a mom or a family member isn't an advocate for their loved one in a hospital, who will be? 
So it may have been uncomfortable for Dr. Radcliffe. It wasn't comfortable for us either, but we needed to know. I had a lot of questions. What do we and I watch for on a daily basis that marks progress? This is a slow process that takes, that, that where changes occur over like weeks or months. So unfortunately on a daily basis, you probably won't see progress. There's nothing that you or I or anyone can do to make the spinal cord heal. I mean, other than what, what I did last night. And, and I mean, let's just be clear, like the bones healing is totally different than the spinal cord healing. The surgery last night was to prevent further movement and displacement and to prevent further injury. It was to keep it slipping out of place again when he coughs or when you turn him or something and they cause injury to something else. It was not to make the spinal cord recover because I don't have that capability. Right. It's not right. It's not that like I don't have that capability. It's like nobody does. Right. So, I mean, you just have to wait and watch and it's torture. That's all it is. That's all you can do. What am I waiting for? The thing that you, that like, the things that are critical are this is a life-changing event for everyone in the family, right? Like, you know, like, I mean, it probably hasn't even fully sunk in yet, but I mean, you know, just, so just like, it's really important that, you know, we be supportive to Arch and that, you know, kind of, you guys just be supportive to each other about the kind of, you know, um, his needs and the changes and how difficult it is to cope with that. And like, I mean, you know, like there's all this, particularly because he's young, you know, we have, everyone has, you know, I mean, I'm a parent, we all have kind of aspirations and expectations and hopes for our children. And like, that's all gonna change. Whew. It was very, sobering when he said all of Archer's aspirations and our hopes of him were going to change. And that surgery did not heal the spinal cord. Wow. And that we would just have to wait and watch and that it would be torture. Okay. It all took my breath away, but it was closer to the whole truth. And I appreciated that. It affected me deeply, but his telling me that I would have to change everything I had hoped for Archer, no, that may have been one version of the truth but it was not mine and it was not the complete truth. Archer Sempt was going to be fine. It was nearing 6 p.m. and the kids all left to drive back to Cape May. I sat in that big recliner chair bedside to Archer 
Pete had placed Archer's headphones awkwardly on him. He is such a good brother. Archer appeared contented when I checked. I began skimming the hundreds of texts I was continuing to receive. I heard back from Steve that he'd have Dutch available in the morning. Okay, that was good. Some texts looked like they contained information that I knew was valuable, but there were so many balls in the air. I texted Paula and asked if she'd start a file for us of rehabilitation places, and I'd forward to her information people were sending me. I texted my go-to friend at Johns Hopkins, Kathy Boyne, for guidance on the best rehab places in Baltimore. I knew nothing of physical therapy, but I knew I wanted whatever was best for Archer. I texted Steve back to let him know I'd like to talk with him before we talk with Dutch. I placed a call to our medical insurance carrier and left a message to let them know Archer was in a serious accident. I texted my friend, David Kelly, to ask for guidance on medical insurance coverage and how these things get paid for. I texted the head of the upper school at McDonough, the high school Archer attended, to let her know Archer had been in an accident. I was just trying to get organized and see our way through this crazy day. I looked at my visitor's notebook. There really were a good amount of business cards from people who had come by today on the counter. I scotch taped them into the pages of the notebook. A hospital surgeon, the chief of trauma, two physical therapists, a pulmonologist, a respiratory therapist, an occupational therapist, a chaplain, a licensed clinical social worker, a nurse administrator. There was even the card of a personal injury attorney. I kid you not. How do these people even know we are here? I looked over and Archer's music had stopped on his phone. I texted Petey. What music does Archer like to listen to? Pete texted back. It's an app called SoundCloud with his playlists. He makes a lot of playlists. I texted Pete. Which one did he say he prefers? Petey texted back. When I asked him, he said the one called Move Your Feet and Beat the Heat. It has a picture, Mom, of sneakers. Move your feet and beat the heat. Can you believe that? Archer named all of his playlists. Then it happened. All hell broke loose. It was the weirdest thing without any warning. All of a sudden, the alarms and beeps and buzzers went crazy in room 3117. And five medical staff came racing in and began working on Archer. It was a fire drill. And Archer didn't move. It was so eerie. They were suctioning and changing out a drip bag, and they were quickly repositioning Archer on his side in a way that it, it, it looked almost barbaric as they paddled his back. It took two men and two strong women to do that. What were they doing? It was awful. It was almost 
surreal to watch. Archer remained motionless. It was so weird. They told me later they were positioning him literally to drain his lungs using gravity, his long six foot two inch body. Then they wheeled in this x-ray machine. And this time I didn't leave the room and saw the film and I took a picture. Not that I knew much about x-rays, but I had never seen anything like it. One lung was totally black on the x-ray while the other totally white. It was so strange. I asked what that meant. The pulmonologist told me Archer's right lung had collapsed. What did that mean? I knew it wasn't good. The night just took on a totally different quality. I could hear Dr. Radcliffe's words echoing in my ears. We'll know in 24 to 48 hours if he'll get off the ventilator in a few days, unless something terrible happens. I texted out a new prayer. Storm heaven, we need it. Please keep praying. We need Archer's lungs to be strong enough to get off the ventilator. That is our prayer for now. And a prayer for a miracle as well. He has no ability in his hands and below his chest. It's hard to take it all in, the gravity of it. I know God has a plan. Please don't stop any prayer, even if just a passing good thought. XO. They said they would continue working on Archer to do anything that was necessary throughout the night. But it had become so quiet, as if we were just waiting, like Dr. Radcliffe had said, like torture for any kind of improvement. Our night nurse's name was Laura. I wrote Laura in the back of my notebook. It turns out she worked at the beach club where Archer worked when she was a kid. When we realized the connection and she spoke with Archer about it, he not only opened his eyes, he was very attentive, I, I kid you not. And his numbers on the machine got better right away. It was actually Laura who noted it, saying that when they talked, she could see his readings on his monitors improve. She had pulled me aside to tell me this, especially his heartbeat. And she giggled a little. I swear it was the emotional connection. He loves the beach club. And she was a doll. But she commented on it too. And she told me, we need to talk with Archer about the beach club more. That's my kind of gal. Surely there is a direct physiological connection between emotion and well-being. I know there is. I asked her how she made the connection. And she laughed and said, word gets around who's in trauma. And Harry Back's sister works at Atlantic Care. Who was Harry Back? It was 10.56 p.m. I got a text from Billy that he was leaving Cape May, headed back to the hospital.
At 10 minutes before midnight, I met him on N Street outside to switch places. The air was hot and muggy, but there was a faint breeze. He drove up. Dewey was with him. They both got out of the car, the car still running, as Dewey crossed over and got into the driver's seat. Billy looked at me for a moment and gave me a little kiss and then headed into the hospital building. Hi, do. How come you came too? Well, Dewey said, Dad and I were a little worried about you and didn't want you to drive back by yourself. And I am glad to do it. Such a good son. At 1201, as we got on the highway, I realized I forgot to tell Billy about my personal notebook. I texted him. There is a small notebook for you to take notes. You can read my notes, XO. At 12.02 a.m., Billy texted back. Thanks, it's very helpful. Dewey and I drove in silence most of the way, our windows down in the night air. Once we were on the Garden State Parkway, outside the bright lights and still heavy traffic of Atlantic City, it was a simple, peaceful, straight-shot drive to exit zero. Dewey's a fast driver. Neither of us said a word. We arrived home. The house was quiet. I crawled into bed. It was 1.06 a.m. I texted Billy. If anything goes wrong tonight, please text me, XO. I tried to sleep. The windows were open, but it was so hot and muggy. I was just restless. I hadn't wanted to leave the hospital. Not sure when I fell asleep. At 2.23 a.m., my phone buzzed. It was Billy. Is everything okay? Archer's other lung just collapsed, he said. Oh my God. He told me they were putting in chest tubes to release the air. More surgery and anesthesia. Exactly what Dr. Radcliffe had said he wanted to avoid. Oh my God, please. Please have mercy on us, Lord, please. I threw on my clothes and drove back up the parkway. Billy texted me, 2.53 a.m., Archer has pneumonia. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Information, the truth, getting clear, the whole truth, Whew, it's tricky. And you have to work hard for the whole truth, it seems. If you are holding on to some bad news or some difficult information or information that you know would potentially change someone else's decision-making and you're in a dilemma about whether or not you share it with someone you care about or someone you don't care about, please consider sharing it. You can when you share the whole truth with love, with compassion, with hope, 
with imagination. That includes your acknowledgement that it's tough news to give. You're strong enough to do this. And the other person is resilient enough to receive it. We all have so much relational capacity. Now, you may have to say many times before you deliver the information that you would like to say something for the benefit of both of you or that you have some bad news but don't want it to fracture or ruin or negatively impact whatever it is that is important to you or to them, an upcoming event, your relationship, your working together, your way of being with each other. And you will have to brace yourself knowing that any news may change the event or relationship. It likely will. What I hope though, is that even bad news when shared with full truthfulness, which includes compassion and empathy, walking in the shoes of the other person asking what would they probably want to know, will make us better, make an event better, a relationship better, a working together better. It will clear the air and bring ease. It might also clarify new boundaries, but not build big walls. Sharing information, including bad news, will help us make more informed decisions. It even might make us wise after we have worked through it. There is so much information, though, that is not important. I mean, there are many things to let go because they are not important. They're not. But if it's just flat-out bad news and we need to know it, but we need to know the whole of it, not just the negative, ugly, assuming the worst side, we need to know the side of potential and possibility and hope. It takes the edge off and softens that sword that might have felt thrust between you and another. If there is bad news you have to give or that you've been holding on to for a while, you might just sit with it in a new way, a way that asks for guidance. We really don't have to figure out life alone. And then make a place where you can be still. There is so much wisdom in the quiet spaces. The answers emerge. At least, that is what I try to tell myself too. But I think it's true though. And that, that is the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Please subscribe on our site, blinkofaneyepodcast.com on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen. 
If you have a story to share, please contact Louise Phipps Senf directly. Louise at blink of an eye She would love to hear from you.